0: Dasra's vision of a billion thriving with dignity and equity has a very intentional kind of usage to it. We are using the word a billion because that gives a sense of scale, it gives a sense of community.
1: Over 600 million, about half of India's population is under the age of 25. So in this sense, when we think about the 1 billion thriving, this demographic group is at the front and the centre of it.
0: In a country where our entire population is about 1.4 billion, a billion is a majority of that. And so everything we do, we do for the larger community.
2: And so to further India's development, we must ensure the development of this group.
0: The other, I think, interesting word is thriving. And again, that to me is very intentional because it doesn't talk about communities just making do. There's a sense of whatever we do should lead to success.
2: What we hope for is a
1: gender equitable, a sustainable and an empathetic world to ensure that all one billion of us are seen thriving. In today's episode of No Cost Extension, we're bringing you some of the best conversations from Dasra Philanthropy Week 2023. This is an edited version of a session based on the CSO at 75 report, a collective effort by India's leading non-profits, Ongoing Platinum, Past, Present and Future of Civil Society in India at 75. Deval Sangvi will be back next week with another great episode of No Cost Extension. Hello everybody
3: and welcome to Dasra Philanthropy Week 2023. My name is Sneha. We're glad to have you all join us today. India's civil society has contributed to our nation in many ways. From the provisions of the RTE, the national eradication programs for polio, and interventions like the ASHA workers, all can trace their beginnings to the efforts of our civil society. A glimpse of the CSO at 75 report was shared at the Jaipur Literature Festival earlier this year. And like the report, we really hope to use today's discussion to pause, reflect, and above all, celebrate our contribution as a civil society to India's development. Please allow me to introduce Aditya Nataraj. Aditya Ji is the CEO of Piramal Foundation, which works in the areas of education, healthcare livelihood creation and youth empowerment. With nearly two decades of experience in the social development sector, his work focuses on cultivating talent in education leadership at the grassroots. Aditya Ji, what does this sector really look like today, right? Where was it in the past? What have been some of your key learnings, reflections and insights on how the sector has really grown?
0: Sneha, I've been in the sector for 20 years now, And when I joined the sector 20 years ago, the first report I actually read was from a coalition of civil society organizations called the Probe Report, which actually spoke about why children were not in school and whether their parents wanted it or not. It wasn't a government report, but I read a lot of UNDP stuff and then I read a lot of civil society stuff. That's how I learned about the sector. And when I look back at the last 20 years, if I look at five or six key things that have happened in education, almost each one of them started because an NGO or a group of NGOs picked that up as a problem, right? So there was a whole movement in Rajasthan uh, for children to start going to school. That slowly became Lok Jumbesh. That then became the district primary education program funded by the World Bank. And that finally became Sarva Shikshabhya which now we think, oh, of course, the government created Sarashek Shabiyan, but what about the early work that happened before that, right? Similarly, if you look at uh, the National Curriculum Framework in Education, there were organizations like Digantar, which had worked for 20, 30 years, which then finally went into the National Curriculum Framework Committee and then became one of the most progressive uh, curriculum frameworks in the world. So again, that came out from an NGO. Even if you look at the Right to Education Act, Right, There was a huge coalition called NAFRE, the National Association for the Fundamental Right to Education. Over 7000 organizations came together, did a lot of work as to the economic value of education, social value of education, and did a whole bunch of lobbying. And that's how that came in. Then, of course, one of the most critical things, uh, ASAR, which came on and said, OK, now children are in school, but they're not learning. And now ASAR has evolved into a government agency itself called PARAK which runs its own assessments. The National Achievement Survey is run. So the government started looking at its own data rather than just uh, NGOs sort of reporting on this, right? And the work like Read India and others that Pratham did is what has now evolved into Nippon and into the foundational literacy mission. So across the board, almost everything that exists, your curriculum framework, your financing framework, your learning quality, your assessments, your programs, everything has come from innovation that CSOs have done just because CSOs don't bother about advertising it and focus on doing the work and celebrating the fact that children are getting better, women are getting better. I think we've not been good at communicating that. And this is not just in education. I mean, if you look at health, uh, the work that Dr. Abhay Bang did became the ASHA workers, which is now such a ubiquitous solution in India and is being tom tommed across the world. The work that Pradhan did became the National Rural Livelihoods Mission. The work that Aruna Arunabhankar Roy did became the Right to Information Act uh work that people like us have done by starting the Gandhi fellowship now across the board, governments run fellowships, and we are the back end for those fellowships, but we learned how to mobilize young people to be involved in India's development. And the same can be said for people with disabilities, adoption rules, all these have come from civil society action. So I think it's really critical to recognize, and the starting of the action to the enabling of the law to the final execution is a 20-year journey. So sometimes we see only the last three years and say, hey, fantastic government scheme, but you don't see 20 years ago, someone said this is a problem and started the work, and uh, that's really creditable. So I think it's Enormous work by the CSO sector.
3: Farida Lambe co founded Pratham in 1995. She's a member of the state and central commissions for preventing child labor and has spearheaded initiatives to protect the rights of sex workers and youth. Farida Ji, you know, how did Pratham and you really start the idea of? building evidence, communicating evidence. I mean, Asar is always quoted everywhere whenever you talk about education, but it started somewhere. And we still actually hear a lot of those questions today, right? What is the evidence of impact?
4: When you're looking at Asar, and Asar is now acclaimed as one of the very important evidence-based document on the learning outcome. I think as Pratham also, when we talk about it, we have to take it gradually we couldn't jump into the learning outcomes, to tell you the truth. We were looking at attendance, we are looking at enrollment, and that was the issue then. So as NGOs, as C- uh, civil society, one identifies the problem and one also sees the relevance. So first 10 years of our existence, we were looking at enrollment, we were looking at value for education. It was, I think, this is where we learned that India is changing, parents are changing, there are lots of aspirations of poor parents, And the parents also want their children to get educated. But one of the major crisis was, you know, learning outcomes and learning crisis. Uh, It was one of the challenges. And I think as Pratham, we've taken the challenge when the Deputy Planning Commissioner told us that, why can't you do a survey? You talk too much. You know, the children are not learning. So we said, fine, we will do it. And that's how, actually, Asar began with, you know, 600,000, you know, children to be tested. I think it has been a hard journey. It has not been easy. And one of the achievements, I would say, is that the government accepted that there is an issue of learning crisis. The moment an organization accepts the issue, half the battle is won. And it took us 10 years to make the government understand and accept the issue. Also, I think as Asar and as Pratim have always said, that we're identifying, we're giving you the diagnosis, we are not, it's not a blame game, but we are also not offering you solutions. But we are demonstrating the solutions which change can happen. Finally, I just want to say that with the governments, they are also changing. The system is also changing. There are young officers in the government who want to do something. And I think that is a, that's a new one from my past experience that the government is now asking you. And uh, I think this entire emphasis now on early childhood care, early years. It has taken 20 years for people to realize the early years as very important segment. And I'm happy that now with Nipun and education policy, this has happened. We have stayed on the ground, we've demonstrated, we've piloted, we've replicated, and we've tried to operationalize what we learned into a policy and vice versa. So I think that's an important learning that as NGOs, how do you actually operationalize that, what you learn on the ground and convert it into policy?
3: Thank you. Thank you so much, Paridaji, and, and thank you, everyone, for the work that you really do. Preeti Patkar is a co founder of Prerna, a nonprofit that works relentlessly to end intergenerational trafficking by protecting vulnerable children from exploitation and safeguarding their rights. Preeti, Thay, we've spoken about the government as a stakeholder. We've spoken about the nonprofits as a part of civil society. I think one of the stakeholders that we don't often talk about are our communities as you know a nonprofit leader that works on a very complex issue what has been your sort of interaction with the community and how have they really contributed to the journey of of civil society i think that'd be great to hear
2: having worked in the anti human trafficking space and child protection space i think you know moving forward civil society's role should be more focused on involving the communities and involving different stakeholders within the communities so in the past at least where child protection was concerned we depended a lot on either the family the individual the child or within our systems those who directly address child protection system just to give you an example COVID, at least for us in Prerna, what COVID taught us was that we need to involve other stakeholders as well. So we moved on to looking at local political parties. I think we, as a civil society organization, really shy away from engaging with them and getting involved and putting, you know, child protection onto their agenda. It's just the last three years, okay? We're realizing that uh, involving them also leads to your end goal of sustainability. Also, we involved a lot of faith-based organizations in the community. Just, you know, taking the issue of begging involving places of worship and telling them that they need to take cognizance of the fact that children are begging outside their premises and how is it that they can get more involved rather than just being a bystander and saying you know this is how the situation is going to remain forever also a lot of informal groups like the U.A. mandals the the self-help group women the women's groups within the community i think all these stakeholders for us have been extremely relevant and along with that you know helping communities and all the stakeholders understand the need to move from a very welfarist approach to a more focused right based and development approach this is what we've been trying to do and you know we also feel that as civil society organizations we should all slowly start moving towards giving more responsibility to communities, believing that communities can take care of themselves and seeing where our role is and also finally defining what our exit plan is going to be. What does that look like? Are we, are we even discussing an exit plan? And I think we'll start believing an exit plan the day we believe that communities can take care of themselves. After a certain point of support that they much require, I think this is the way forward for us to move.
3: Thank you, Preeti
2: Sanjoy Roy is the
3: Managing Director of Teamwork Arts and Founder Trustee at the Salam Balak Trust. Through his work, he has helped integrate performing arts and theater into social action. Sanjoy, tell us a little bit about the CSO at 75 Coalition, its genesis, and really, what is the impact it has had, and why did you really start this coalition and this report?
5: You know, one of the problems that we've been having in the uh, NPO or the NGO sector is Uh, there's a growing distrust between government stakeholders and the NGO sector. Uh, There's a feeling that the NGO sector uh, is critical of uh, the present narrative and that we, in many ways, don't sort of support government in its many initiatives. What we've set up to do as this loose coalition is really to look at how the NGO sector has been able to contribute across 75 years and across sectoral divides. I think it's the only sector where you don't have to have a reservation for women, caste based reservations, people with disabilities. These are things that cut across our sector irrespective. Yes, there's a feeling that it's difficult to enumerate uh, the actual value of what this sector brings to the table because as we all know, development is not necessarily just an hour's job or the result is not necessarily evident at the end of one week or one month or one year. Development goals are long-term. Development itself needs to be measured long-term and there's no real measurement yet. Despite that, what we wanted to do is sort of enumerate what are the good practices? What are the areas that the NGO sector has very effectively been able to intervene and create good practices in, what is the value that this sector contributes to GDP, but more importantly, to showcase that collectively with the NGO sector, the government, the corporate sector, and all key stakeholders. If we walk the talk together, we are going to be able to do much more. We are going to be able to achieve the SDG goals and all the other goals set out but we need to do it in collaboration.
3: Thanks, Sanjay. and really excited to learn about what the report has found, but that's when I'd kind of like to invite Pushpa Aman Singh. Pushpa ji is the founder of GuideStar India. After 18 years of scaling innovative organizations, including running Give India as its COO, she founded GuideStar India in 2009. Pushpa ji has a decade of experience in the financial services sector. Pushpa, if you could share a little bit on what has been your experience of working uh, with nonprofits over the years and also specifically what have been some of your findings, quick research notes from this exercise.
1: So in my two decades in this sector, when I was at India and then set up GuideStar, what's starkly different from the corporate sectors, everyone not just opens up their hearts, but also their books and i for one have never had an issue in getting data from people when we ask in fact i feel people are very trusting right but where the difficulty has been is like sanjay said coming together adding up you know what everyone is reporting yeah it's hard to report but there are lots of individual organizational information that's out there like we have nearly 12,000 organizations on GuideStar voluntarily putting out different levels of information. But I don't have a dashboard where I can just click a button and say, this is what the total of 12,000 NGOs is because you know our indicators are different, how we measure is different. So if our work is not being celebrated, it's because it's not known, so it's not considered, so it's not celebrated, right? And one of the follow-ups is, therefore, our trust is questioned at every level and the mission of my life In the sector has been to promote trust and transparency and even after two decades it looks like every morning whether it's from gathering resources or delivering results or reporting it we're just being questioned and the ease of doing good we are nowhere there it's just getting more and more difficult so what this kind of study has done is however difficult it is SSCR, a non-profit think tank in Delhi has kind of tried to look at all the national accounts data. Much of it is in public domain. And how do we then kind of come up with a conservative estimate of what the sector contributes? And they've said that we contribute 1.94% of the GDP. So the other day at a workshop, I was saying, we feel we are very small and insignificant. Not. When the IT sector says 7.4%, you know, within clicks of a few buttons, they can put out that number. Whereas for us, a majority of the people are volunteers. They are paid at very deep discount to their market values. And we have donated assets or assets that far outlive their regular life in the corporate space with all the Jugaad that we do in the sector. So many of our expenses, we don't even incur it's in kind. So with all this, when we say 1.94%, it's definitely bigger than that. And in terms of gross value added, also they have tried to put out a number, which is roughly about 43 billion USD, right? And that by no means is small. And if we start computing, tracking, refining this, I think we will be able to kind of start saying confidently, even if I'm a small nonprofit working in Kalimpong, when I'm talking to the district magistrate, I can say I'm one of those who bring in, you know, nearly 2% of the GDP.
3: Pushpa, I know we talk about two buzzwords a lot, transparency and legitimacy. know, works with this day in and day out, but if you can just elaborate on what your experience really has been and and where we are at today, really, in terms of these two aspects.
1: Yeah, you know, our survey also had questions around systems of accountability, where we are today. And 84% organizations in the sample actually said that they have their governing body information in the public domain right for me that's an important indicator so so in a sense they're saying these are the people who take responsibility for our organization you can reach out to them and ask questions another data point that we saw was that uh, 77 percent of organizations get their accounts audited and share it in the public domain the law doesn't require them to do income tax still in india voluntarily 77 percent ngos say that they put it in public domain so to me what the survey actually threw up is that a large number of organizations do have fairly uh, advanced and open levels of transparency but the trust is not coming because perhaps we are not able to communicate and even if they have put it out in public domain we are not able to bring the traffic to look at it, right? So can we find common spaces, uh, you know, where we are able to kind of aggregate this and allow people to have interactive dashboards to slice and dice this data and literally look into what's happening in the sector? I think we need to use standards for few things, like the terminologies that we use, even certain standard terminologies for the communities we work with. Because everyone uses a different term, so the details don't add up, and we are not able to present this unified picture. I'll take the example of the certification program that we have at GuideStar India to kind of improve or give a label towards the transparency accountability levels. A few weeks ago, we were at Ritzland talking about pay what it takes. So I think I can only speak for the standard around due diligence. Similarly, if we come up with common language common ways, indicators for, you know, the whether the activities, the inputs, the output or the outcome. If you start using certain common language, common standard ways of measuring, then there are more efficiencies around it. You know, I want us to stop saying each of us is unique. Yes, we are unique, but you know, we we can create subgroups within the sector. You know, the ICNPO has got language around classifying our work, There are impact indicators put out in the UN handbooks and we as GuideStar want to work with clusters of organizations in different thematic areas to put together this common language at least around the indicators to measure our output and outcomes. So I think if they start using some of these while it will retain our uniqueness, we won't depend on some outside agency to come and say. I want to cut you into four groups and your report. Maybe we will be able to say we are 40 or 450. And within that, these two and a half lakh NGOs or 2 million NGOs are able to kind of say we fall into these clusters and this is how our nuances are different. But at least let's do that and you know, let's put our house in order together. We are doing fabulous work, but let's start kind of communicating in some form that the rest of the world is able to see and understand.
3: I wanted to bring... Sanjoy, and to talk about proposals and contracts. Sanjoy, what are some things that the philanthropic community can really, really do to help nonprofits?
5: I'll give you the example of the Azim Premji Foundation, which has in the past been supporting Salam Balak Trust and is one of our anchor donors. wherein in our third three-year cycle with them and they've come back and said hey we're allocating x amount of budget for you you spend it in areas that you feel appropriate not necessarily because we bound you by that so what we used to then do by uh, by, by the next phase was that we could move their contribution around do we need another fundraising officer do we need to invest in hr do we need more people in accounting? Can we upgrade our education program so we could move the money around? But now what they've done, they've come back and said, hey, you're one of our trusted first partners that we've, the and Premji Foundation funded. What we want to do is set you up with an endowment, use the interest as you feel best. It won't be a grant any longer. Now you're talking business because we know then that as an anchor partner, at the beginning of the financial year, especially, as accounting and taxation issues get even more challenging as government tries to control FCRA and the NGOs through local funding as well. We know that we're starting the year uh, at a particular level, and we can only grow from that. And that gives you the sense of security for any establishment. And you know, we're in Delhi. I've got long hair. I can schmooze Who else can do that in the smaller cities, in the villages, in the hinterland? They have no access. And it's really those are the kinds of people who bring about huge amount of impact. Because even a 5% impact in a village in Uttar Pradesh, you change those five lives in that village. Look at the kind of transformation you can bring around, whether it's in Orissa, in UP, in Telangana. But how do these people do it? They're having to struggle year on year to be able to get funds released by government, which happens typically at the end of the funding cycle, which is at the end of the year. And they have to survive. They have their children to send to school. They have their programs to run. You cannot expect an NGO today, especially in the hinterland, to be spending money. When you give them the money at the end of the year, what will that result in? Of course, you're going to fudge your books because you have no choice. So there's no point then saying that, oh, NGOs are like this. I'm sorry, NGOs are not like this. You are forcing NGOs to get into a situation where they are like that. And again, as Pushpa rightly said in the report, what we are seeing is the largest number of NGOs are the small NGOs. And we know that the small NGOs at that very base level are being able to bring about much more impact because they're working at that grassroots level, bringing about much needed change.
3: I think along with funding, another thing we really struggle with in the sector is attracting the right kind of talent. Aditya would love to bring you in at this point to share a little bit of how have you really been able to foster, nurture and really attract great talent and young people into the sector? That's a tough one,
0: Sneha. The reality is that you know, the sector pays, on average, much, much less than any other sector. Everyone who's joining our organization has a job at Amazon, at Infosys, at Google, which is at at least one and a half, two half, 2x, or sometimes 3x of what they would otherwise be paid here. So I think one of the key constraints in the sector is that just we've just accepted lower salaries for some reason, while we're expecting greater accountability. So we definitely struggle on the talent side, but I think the compensation is in terms of mission orientation and values. So today we are selling a dream saying, okay, you were bored sitting and coding. Why do not you instead create a platform for adolescent girls? And the guy says, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he takes a, you know, 60% hit in pay and comes and works here. Uh, so today we are selling, you know, values because you're saying, you work there and it was this thing, at least in the NGO sector, integrity between thought and speech and action is closer. But hopefully corporate India you know, is getting better and better at creating meaningful roles. And in that case, I really wonder who join the NGO sector because why should I take a 60% hit? So Mahindra is a fantastic group to work for, Tata is a wonderful group to work for, Godra is a wonderful group to work for, and they're also doing socially responsible stuff. See, 20 years ago, corporate and development were completely separate. Today, you can't separate them because you have to have a sustainable business, you have to treat women in your workforce well, you have to have diversity and inclusion, you have to have a larger social mission, which means the corporate is moving closer and closer to this. And then the NGOs also moving closer to previously it was only charity, now you have to have some income stream, you have to be able to charge beneficiaries something. So the space is really coming closer and closer to each other, but the salary levels are just not coming close they still, for some reason, they're stuck at a particular level despite multiple efforts. So today we are surviving because we're selling a dream, but I don't think that's sustainable.
3: I think you echo the sentiments of a lot of NGO leaders and community leaders here, and thank you for that candid sharing of information. Piti Tai communities, right? Communities today face a lot of challenges. We've had just come out of a pandemic, hopefully. We have a bunch of issues around climate we have a lot of migration issues and the area that you work in is directly affected and impacted by this so what are the communities of today really asking for
2: i think what communities really want is sustainable programs for them see people are not happy migrating they want to be connected with their communities they want to stay in communities for example let's again you know because child protection is what i understand when families are in distress they do not want to send their children to child care institutions but they have nothing local homegrown within the community We are not establishing community-based childcare services. A simple, I mean, I think it's simple, it's probably not simple and therefore it's not happened. I mean, I would love a Primal Foundation, I would love an Azeem Premji Foundation to invest heavily on childcare program, crashes, drop-in centers in communities. It has such multiple potential. You protect the child, you ensure the development rights of children are taken care of, but you're also supporting women to increase their own income. We've seen experiences in the community where women have said, the minute her income generating capacity increases, we find she's in a better position to negotiate. She's in a better position to ensure she does not experience violence. So I think communities more and more are asking for that. And of course, post-COVID communities are asking for social security documents. They want to be linked to social security schemes. And there are these schemes there. You know, many of us have looked at the schemes. They really benefit the communities. And wherever we feel these schemes have not been updated in terms of financial remuneration and reimbursements, I think it's time we advocate for that as well.
1: So when i think about why is it that people struggle to survive let alone thinking about thriving to me it comes down to discrimination at multiple levels whether it is based on income levels gender caste religion perceptions about intelligence social status or even just location
2: only when we acknowledge the historical material economical and real privileges and disadvantages that come because of these layers of identities is when we will be in a position to build better solutions. The ecosystem of Indian philanthropy is rapidly evolving and agility is critical to creating impact in the communities we serve. Strategically catalyzing philanthropy in India so that our most marginalized and vulnerable communities have access to realize their true potential is what we mean by Billion Thriving. Find us at dasra.org forward slash NCE for more details. Subscribe to No Cost Extension on your favorite podcast platform.